0: Customers quite often have a much longer journey with you than just experiencing the product or service that you offer to them. When you are seeing a particular transaction with a customer, that quite often is only sort of the tip of the iceberg of actually much deeper underlying needs that this customer has.
1: Hello and welcome to the melting pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkaus. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Munkhouse. And today, we're learning with Nikolai Sigelkow. Nikolai, born in Hamburg, left Hamburg after high school and went to the US. He did his undergrad at Stanford. And then he did a, an MA where well, he studied economics. Then he did an MA in economics at Harvard. And then he did a PhD in economics at Harvard. So smart bloke. He's now Professor of strategy at the Wharton School in Pennsylvania. So he's a lifelong academic. He loves the intersection of teaching and research and getting to focus on the things he's excited about. And so he's written a fantastic book called Connected Strategy, which we're gonna talk to him about today. But what he loves to do is he looks to see, I guess, three broad questions. How do firms develop and grow and adjust the set of activities that they do over time? And how do those activities Result in high performance, and what do those interactions among the firm's activities play in creating and sustaining competitive advantage? And I was going to say I got to know Nikolai. I didn't. I, I felt speaking to today that I already knew him because, as a result of COVID and Wharton School going fully remote, Nikolai recorded and put online. An executive education course on business strategy which i took recently which is how i came across him read his book and wanted to have him on the podcast so an absolutely great conversation today it's about how do you take maybe transactions that you have with your customer those one-off interactions. This example is the healthcare, certainly in the US, you know, you have insurance, you're paying all the time, you never visit your doctor, then you have a heart attack and you find yourself in hospital. And so you sell something to a customer for a set amount of money, and you have to persuade them of the lifetime value of that asset so that they'll part with their cash upfront. So we talk about pricing, we talk about subscription, we talk about technology and how those things are coming together to change the way organizations compete, that sort of connected strategy. How can we take a transactional relationship with a customer and turn it into a lifetime revenue generating relationship? So, an absolutely fantastic conversation today. I learned a ton. Great book, great course. Enjoy my conversation with Nikolai Ziglkow.
0: Hi, this is Nikolai Ziglkow. I am the David M. Not Professor at the Wharton School in Philadelphia, US. Um, as you can maybe Hear from my accent. I'm not originally from this country. I'm actually from Germany, but I've been in this country now for a really long time. Uh, basically, left after high school. Uh, you know, went to Stanford as an undergrad. Went to uh, HBS for my PhD, and have been out at the Wharton School for more than 23 years uh, teaching strategy. So glad to be here, Dominic.
1: Nikolai, thank you very much indeed for coming on. I, I came across you, I was going to say met you, I didn't. I was just saying in the preamble, it feels as though I have met you because I've taken your online, one of your Wharton online courses in strategy. So thank you for giving us your time today. Why did you end up, why did you want to be a professor of strategy? What attracted you to that?
0: It's really the variety of the job that attracted me. Um, That's sort of the wonderful thing of being a professor in a business school, right? So on the one hand, you spend quite a bit of time doing research on the topics that you really love. Uh, no one tells you what to do. Uh, it's not a consultant who says, hey, your appointment or you know, your assignment is over here and you need to study now with the salt mines or the oil industry or whatever, right? You can just uh, focus on what you are really interested in. Um, at the same time, you, know, you have the great opportunity to uh, teach really great students. And those are sometimes young students like undergraduates or our executive MBA students or executives um, you know, and you have the ability to work together with companies once in a while, and so it's kind of this mixture that I found really, really attractive.
1: And what's what's been the impact of of COVID on on your work? It's all gone online, and are you you go you going back you're going back in the fall or?
0: Yes, yes. So it has uh, all pivoted very quickly within a few weeks. Uh, we were all online uh, with our kind of regular courses, and then a couple of weeks later with all our executive courses, and it's been. Basically, a year of online delivery, which is kind of interesting in its, in its own right. And uh, we learned a lot of what works and what doesn't work that well. But uh, overall, it's been an amazingly positive experience, an amazing learning curve. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, two weeks ago, I started having my first in-class experiences again with students, which was sort of a hybrid version of some students were in the classroom, some students were at home. And uh, yes, and by the fall, the, the hope is uh, to be again, basically sort of speak back to normal.
1: Are there some things that you would retain from the remote experience? Are there, is there anything that will be different next year or the year after as a result of 2020?
0: Well, my sense is we will be offering more things online that we maybe didn't dare before. Uh, I think we always felt those two things to be kind of substitutes with each other. And I think, again, we've learned they are more complementing each other that there are very different audiences uh you know people who love to come to philadelphia and do things in person uh but other people just can't for various reasons right but they still would love to learn and so uh, i think the the online delivery channel is 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 a wonderful way of of reaching to audiences that we previously have not been able to reach to so i think that that will be that
1: will remain certainly i'd be i would be in that category (laughs) And uh, in fact, one of our one of our clients recommended that I take your course, and subsequently, I've recommended to a number of other business coaches that I know. Well, thank you. Well, it's fab. It's that whole taking some of Porter's tools and then seeing them work through in action has been uh, has been really really interesting. When when you say you get to work on the things that are interesting you, what's your what's your specialist subject then? What's, what what uh, what do you like to work on?
0: Well, so I've been intrigued, and I don't know whether it's a, a good thing to say or not, basically with the same topic for the last 23 years. <laughs> that, is, <laughs> okay. that is really thinking about the interdependencies of strategic choices that firms are making, right? And thinking really about that is in these interdependencies of the strategic choices that quite often, A, the source of Competitive advantage comes from, but also the sustainability of that competitive advantage comes from. And uh, so that was a topic I was first exposed to. Oh gosh, now it's I don't know, 28 years, 29 years, sort of as an undergraduate uh, at Stanford when I studied with Paul Milgram, who then became my honors thesis advisor, uh, studying the interrelationships of the supply networks that the Japanese automobile manufacturers had versus you know con- contrasting that to the North American and European ones and. So right, it was an exciting year because Paul won the Nobel Prize in Economics this year. So that was uh, that was amazing, uh, you know. And then I went to Harvard and I saw kind of a working paper by Mike Porter that talked about very similar ideas of sort of interdependencies. And so wow, if you know Paul Milgrom and Mike Porter think that's an interesting idea, maybe there is something to it, you know. <laughs> and so. Um, uh, that's what we really got me started uh, on this on this path. So I, you know, then Mike became my PhD uh, um, you know supervisor, and kind of understanding kind of how firms create these you know activity systems, and you know what are the implications in terms of organizational structure of these interdependencies, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of uh, what what really got me going, and uh, and has been sort of fascinating me for for a long time. And obviously the you know, the implications have broadened up in various different directions, but sort of at the core of my my work has always been sort of this the sense of interdependencies among choices that firms are making.
1: And so when you say that, you mean there are some differentiators, sort of a, a handful of differentiators that people have got, but they're surrounded by maybe tens or twenty of sort of choices that they decide to do something differently to their competitors?
0: Yeah, and it, it's basically kind of understanding that you're Various call it activity choices along your value chain are interconnected. You know, so it's not enough to say, "Oh, let's run this wonderful you know marketing campaign, but maybe we don't actually have the product design set up to do this. And then we don't have actually the logistics set up to if the marketing campaign happens to be you know successful to actually fulfill all of these orders or our manufacturing isn't even set up. right? And so all of these elements of of a company actually quite often interact with each other. And you know quite often companies are, designed to be really good in the various subfunctions and you know they create these wonderful silos, but thinking through these interdependencies is, is really hard.
1: Customer satisfaction gets destroyed as they go from one to another. Or in fact the silos don't care about oh, yeah. anything outside their silo.
0: No, and I mean I think that's that's sort of you know what one, one of the themes in connected strategy, right? Sort of this this notion of that quite often you force your customers to understand your organization structure and have them work through your organizational structure to somehow stitch together sort of a, in a, you know, a consistent experience, right? Uh, and, you know, so yeah, you treat the same customers, like six different customers and six different databases that you have.
1: Yes. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because there's that sort of B2C, it's B2B, right? So as a customer at Amazon, I'm quite happy that Amazon knows loads about me and it makes it easy. And they've made it really easy to do a return because they've worked out They don't have to hire people to manage returns if you just let people do their own returns and everybody wins. Whereas then you go elsewhere, you go to a company that, you know, still a company's in the UK. I want to return something that I've bought online. And then I realise I have to ring somebody up and I have to get an RTM number. You're thinking, God, this is just so hard. I'm never going to buy from you again. Right, it's just, you've like you haven't caught up. You know, it's thirty years ago since people stopped delivering, stopped be- behaving like this. Yeah, yeah. And so businesses that do that to their customers are just. It seems to be that businesses are incapable of spotting that sand that they put in the into the transaction with customers.
0: Yeah, and it's 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 sort of funny, and it, it always surprises me. So when I I talk to managers and we're trying sort of to think a little bit about sort of the various pain points that their customers have. And, uh, you know, say, well, let's map out their, you know, sort of their customer journey. Let's map out their pain points. And then they do this and you come back and basically they're just telling you their pain points. I say, no, no, I didn't want to hear your pain points. I want to hear the customer's pain points. Right? And it is, it is quite interesting of how hard sometimes people have it to put themselves into the shoes of
1: the customer. Yeah. What's your, uh, what's your favorite, I guess, activity fit system? When you look at it, you just think, you know, you can see that it's been deliberately created rather than sort of serendipitously appeared.
0: Yeah, and and I mean, truth be told, right, it's always both of those processes, right? Sort of, I mean, it's never that a founder of a firm wakes up one morning and says, voila, here it is, right? Immaculate conception, right? So here are all the choices and how they wonderfully... So clearly there's always kind of an evolutionary path. Uh, At the same time, it is quite often... Also very rare that these complex systems just sort of appear Mm -hmm. by happenstance, right? I mean, I think there is always sort of some feedback, some control, uh, because these systems are at the end of the day kind of the results of decisions made throughout the organization over time, right? And so, that's sort of unlikely that something like this just sort of spontaneously emerges. So, so it's always both, right? But but clearly, you see, just as once, you, because you asked for, for an example, I sort of Vanguard, I think, is, a, is sort of a nice example, right, of a company that, you know, had very clear directions from fairly early on with Jack Bogle as the founder and, you know, all the CEOs who succeeded them, you know, they've they've moved a little bit this way or that way. But so clearly kind of there are some key elements were put in place pretty early on, you know, and then it sort of evolved, right? And sort of people, people refined it.
1: And so that's based on maybe some core beliefs that remain unchanging over time and then almost get sort of ingrained into the organization and say, even if you wanted to change them, it would be difficult.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And those are beliefs about either sort of the fundamental business model or proposition, right? Sort of in Vanguard, it's, you know, we are a mutual company. We are actually owned by our fund shareholders. And that puts, you know, a particular mindset, right, kind of in, you know, who are we mainly working for? We are working for our fund shareholders, right? There are, you know, some beliefs around what kind of products do we offer and, and how do we create value? And for instance, Vanguard, again, it was sort of usually long-term investments and you know, reducing trading costs and, by and large, reducing costs, right? And, uh, so, so, yeah, so those kind of principles right, have stayed sort of pretty constant over time. And then you know, how to do it right, kind of has changed dramatically, obviously, with improvements in technology, et cetera.
1: Do you have a historical where you look back at one where you know, you've had, it's, it's been sort of put together as a retrospective, which you, which you like?
0: Well, again, there's probably usually sort of both things uh, happening at the same time. I mean, Progressive Insurance, you know, company is another I think fascinating company that um, you know kind of evolved from just being sort of a high risk insurer and being very very good at that segment, and then sort of you know using sort of their capabilities to uh, become larger and being able to underwrite other other folks and kind of using again sort of their their technology to innovate in terms of business models, where for instance you can tell them, you know, here's the premium I want to pay, and then they tell you what coverage you can get, right? <laughs> and so it is, you know, just you name your price, I tell you what product you can get, right? And you need to have quite some some technical expertise to be able to offer those kinds of those kinds of products. Right. And so um, it's kind of fascinating of again sort of to see a firm like that evolve.
1: Yeah, well, or I was just thinking in the insurance space, you know, Lemonade have had a similar sort of innovation around how to set premiums and what it means to be a customer. Your book, Connected Strategy, how come you ended up writing that book? What was there? What, what itch were you scratching or what problem are you helping to solve for the world?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so. Kind of. So my co-author Christian Terwisch and I, we basically joined the Wharton School at the same time. Christian is a uh, professor in the operations department, so it was a kind of an interesting blend of strategy and operations. And uh, both of us are also co-directors of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management at Wharton. So uh, we talked a lot of companies, and and there was kind of this this theme that that we were observing of many organizations right across a whole swath of different industries really fundamentally reshaping the way they interacted with our customers, you know, from having sort of few episodic interactions to have a much more continuous relationship with, with customers. Now, the, the setting that, you know, originally kind of inspired us was healthcare. I think healthcare is sort of one of those great examples where you can see sort of the problems. Um, so only if something really bad happens to me, right? Do I see my, my, my doctor or get admitted to the hospital? And then once I'm in the hospital, I'm fully connected, right? I got full attention on me 24-7 until someone decides, okay, now he's good enough. And then they basically kick me out of the hospital. And I'm, again, completely unconnected. I might get a one-phone call, right, just to check up on me, you know, and then they wait again for something really catastrophic to happen to me to get, again, readmitted, right? And so the moment you say it like that, right, it seems like this cannot be efficient, right? This cannot be efficient for me as a patient, nor can it be efficient in the healthcare system, right? And so this is sort of what got us kind of really going here of, you know, how can we, you know, or or a lot of organizations are thinking about, right, how can we create a much more continuous relationship with customers that ultimately actually will allow us to have both a better customer experience, while at the same time actually reducing cost.
1: And were you thinking about prevention versus cure? Were you thinking, how do we keep in touch? How do we do regular bloods? How do we make sure you're fit and healthy, as opposed to just you know, starting your heart when it stops.
0: Exactly right. So that's that's absolutely true. And I mean, it, it might be just the prevention, or it really, it's in some sense prevention of bad things happening. You know, even if I had something, but you know, do I take my medication on time? Do I do it in the right dosage, etc.? Et there are lots of things, right? And a lot of chronic diseases that people have, kind of where, uh, again, kind of the the better our monitoring is the. More of kind of bad outcomes we can prevent, right? Uh, that that just happen.
1: Particularly the cost of obesity and type two diabetes in the Western world, sure, is huge. All, all of which, all of which can be completely fixed without medical intervention. Yeah. So, did you find, did you find a company doing that well, or did you then that just you just thought right, we're going to go and look for examples?
0: Yeah. No, I mean that that's exactly kind of right where where we started out. So seeing, so what what are actually companies doing? you know you see sort of little instances here and there and then instances both in the b2b and the b2c world right so one of our kind of favorite examples is disney and the magic band it used to be when you go to disney world you know you hand over your ticket and that was basically your sort of your interaction and now with the magic band uh you know that serves as your ticket but also as your hotel key and else as your credit card and right so it makes your life as a visitors sort of easier, but it also allows Disney to know exactly right, where people are inside the park. And so now they can direct me to an attraction that has a shorter line or they can pre-program an itinerary for me. So it allows them also to run the park more, more efficiently. Right? And so that was kind of, again, this idea about you know, we have both a better customer experience while at the same time kind of reducing our cost.
1: Oh, and and I think one of the examples you gave in the book is if you have children and they're interacting with Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck or whoever, they know that they've met you before, at least the kids know they've met you before. And now the actor will also know that they've met you before or that it's your birthday or whatever. So, you know, there's a whole level of interaction that's possible that wasn't possible before.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And so, so exactly sort of interactions that previously had been pretty hard to to do kind of you you can do much better now so uh but again i mean you know just 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 play this out right sort of you know here you are walking with your with your daughter, you know, call her, whatever, you know, Bethany. And, and, you know, here comes Jack Sparrow, right? Jack Sparrow in, in in costume. And Jack Sparrow says, hi, Bethany, how are you, right? So that, that used to be kind of difficult to do, right? Because previously there was like a guy hiding in the bushes, right? And you as a parent would go to the bush, right? And say, hey, my, my daughter Bethany is coming around the corner, right? And then the guy in the bush would go on his walkie-talkie, talk to the guy in costume, right? Saying, hey, Bethany is coming around. Right? So, so, you know, now kind of, right, Jack Sparrow has a handheld device, And since Bethany is wearing her magic band, he knows it's Bethany. And exactly as you're saying, right? And he can continue saying, hey, Bethany, it's it's, it's great. And hopefully you remember we met actually, right, last year in Anaheim, right? And I have to really congratulate you that you just made it through level 15 on the online parts of the Caribbean game because that was a really hard level, right? I mean, congratulations. You know, and for Bethany, it's like her most magic day in her life, right? I mean, hey, you know, Jack Sparrow knows me by name. He remembers me from last year and he's cheering me on on the video game. Now, of course, you as a parent, you might go, man, that's creepy. <laughs> right? And and so so I think that is really important, right? Uh, that I think a lot of these connected strategies are quite often at this borderline between magic and creepy. Right. And so this is a you know a, a big theme we, we try to develop in the book of saying, look, you know, different customers will have very different preferences of, of how they want to connect with you, right? And even the same customer in different instances might have very different preferences. Of how much they want the environment act on them, of how much uh, you know they want you to take care of things versus themselves taking care of things, right? And so we have to be careful that we're not you know creating too many creepy instances of things and, and scaring off customers. Uh, and so that's why I think companies have to create a whole variety of different kinds of connected customer experiences uh, to be able to really utilize this well.
1: And have you got any examples from last year as COVID changed lots of people's interaction with their retailer or supplier
0: yeah i mean I, I think sort of intriguingly right sort of now no one had really direct contact with their customers anymore right or or you know very, in a very different way particularly if you think about retail and, and so i think in the first instance just every company just tried to cope somehow right sort of how do we how do we contact these customers and i'm not sure of how much better many companies have gotten kind of truly understanding their customers, right? I think they were sort of more in survival mode. But I think sort of companies that had already built up deeper relationships with customers, you know, I'm thinking like a company like Lululemon, kind of, right, sort of where it was not just, okay, you go to a store and you pick up some pants, but it was sort of more like a community already. You know, I think those companies really were able to move sort of some of that community feeling, this deeper relationships also online, right? And and now kind of as stores opening up, they're bringing it back, right? And so I think those companies had it sort of an easier time, you know, migrating basically their customers into a different channel and, and not losing them.
1: Yeah, you do read another podcast guest was on, and he was lives in Bristol and he said, look, on the same street, three restaurants, they all closed down at the same time. One of them started running, online cookery courses, created a community, opened up and was full. The other two opened up and closed again. And the one that had worked out who its customers were and, and created a community had, had survived, you know, rented the car park off the estate agent next door. So when they opened up, they had more tables outside than they'd had before. You know, that, that sort of reactivity. And I think, is it a mindset thing in the owner's? in the CEO?
0: Possibly, but but I think, again, so this is maybe, and, you know, we're still, I guess, all grappling with trying to really see, you know, what do, what did we learn, right? Kind of, but I think it became more obvious, what are the elements of interactions that we truly value as customers? which interaction was just basically imposed upon me because I couldn't do it anywhere else, right? Uh, And so, Mm -hmm. you know, do I get a lot of enjoyment of buying my, you know, toilet paper? Probably not, right? So if, if I can do that sort of online or automatically getting restocked or whatever, fine, right? This is not something that's missing from my life. Whereas the idea about, hey, kind of there's sort of some communal aspect of cooking together or learning a recipe or those things we learn, you know, you can do it on a Zoom call, but it's sort of different, right, from being in a room with other people and, and enjoying a glass of wine together and cooking something, right? And, and so I think kind of this, this idea, again, coming back to retail, right, of sort of distinguishing the kind of distribution dimension from the experience dimension, Right, and saying, okay, kind of, you know, we, we cannot just use our store as a warehouse, you know, kind of where you come in and you pick up your clothes, you know, I don't need to go to a warehouse, right? <laughs> if I can do this from home and you send it to me, right? I'm not getting much joy out of that. So then you need to focus your, the, you know, the, the interactions in the store on something else, right? Which you cannot replicate. And so that's, I think, kind of what we are, everyone, I think, is starting to learn, right? And, you know, think about the whole organization of work, right? You know, so we used to be all, all the time in our offices, right? Now we were all the time at our homes. Uh, and I think we've sort of learning kind of, right, that certain things work really well from home and other things don't, right? And I think sort of we'll, we'll see some very interesting experiments, I think, going back sort of into this hybrid world now, right? Because I, I doubt we're going back to where we were before, a year and a half ago, because uh, I think we learned that wasn't efficient either. And so, so I think that's you know to me just just fascinating to observe kind of what where we'll end up with,
1: and and that becomes a strategic choice that people are making in the con, in the connective system of their business. You know, do you go fully remote and get rid of your office? Yep. You know, one of our clients is fully remote. Have been from almost from the point they started because they were started in a small town in Ireland and very quickly they'd hired all of the three computer literate people in the town. <laughs> and so, so they had to go, they had to go more broadly, but it's interesting, the type of people that they have on their payroll aren't the type of people who live in suburban Philadelphia, yep. who just so happen to be one of their employees. They're people who've said, I'm happy to work remotely hundred percent of the time, but I'm going to live in the Austrian Alps because I ski when I'm not working. Or I'm going to live on the beach because I surf when I'm not working. So, you know, they have their community Mm -hmm. is around some other activity that where they get all of that that they don't get from the office. It's funny because I was talking to I was talking to my son who is in his early 20s and is in sales. And he said, I need to get back to the office. I want to go back to the office four or five days a week because I'm sitting in my hallway looking at the wall and, <laughs> yep, and, yep. and not going out for a drink after work and not celebrating the success of the day and not overhearing other people and, and learning. I'm just sort of in a bubble and it's like Groundhog Day. Right. And it's funny because I do think that that view of people who want to go back to work at the minute, you don't read that. You hear, you hear the horrible bosses who are saying everyone should come back to work. And you're hearing the people who say, "Don't be ridiculous, I never want to pay the commute tax again. The culture was crap. Why would I ever go back yeah. but that that group of people who are actually looking forward to going back to work and going back to the office, mm-hmm. they seem to be pretty silent, I guess because it's not news to uh to share their story
0: yeah but 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 it's' that's it's again like like you you one restaurant that's doing well, you know kind of I think you know so you will you'll not have three restaurants again right uh because lot of the people now do home delivery and you know do meal box delivery and but the third that really enjoys it, they'll go to the restaurant right um and so I think something similar we'll see probably with with work environment
1: in the connected strategy there's there's a number there's sort of technology that you're playing there with as a sort of a meta driver around you know the the disney the magic
0: band, yeah, the magic band, yeah, yeah.
1: Magic band, yeah. And then, of course, one of the things that you say is that, you know, when it opened in Shanghai, they didn't do that because by then everybody had something else that they could use, which was their mobile phone. So the technology had moved on. Right. And so there's that, there's a technology piece, but there's also a subscription piece Mm -hmm. that you talk about. And, you know, subscription for toilet rolls, why wouldn't you? Subscription for cars, you know, are there any other sort of meta trends that you see driving this connectedness?
0: Yeah, so it's kind of, um, if I remember correctly, like chapter eight in the book or something (laughs) on on revenue models, right? And uh, that's, I think, sort of the, the, the broader topic, that as we are having a deeper information flow between us and the customer, we can think about a wider array of revenue models than before, right? So kind of the most traditional revenue model is I'll sell you something and you pay me and that's it. Right. Uh, And what's the problem, right, of that sort of typical revenue model is that I need to convince you, right, of the quality and all of my product and all of the value that you will get out of this product for the lifetime you'll use this product. I need to convince you of that at the time of purchase. And then I have to extract all of that value at that time. And that's kind of hard. Quite often, right? Because you as a customer, well, I don't know how good this thing is. I don't know how long it will last, and whether it will actually do all the things that you promise me it will do, right? That's, you know, if I now can observe you using my product every day, right? And every day you say, "Wow, this actually works. This is great." I'm, I'm you know, then you might be willing to pay every day a little bit for the use of that product, right? Uh, and over time, kind of, you might spend actually quite a lot of money. So, you know, my Favorite example of this is, uh, you know, games you play on your phone, right? I mean, would you be willing to pay three hundred sixty dollars for a game that you play on your phone? You say well, crazy, right? I mean, yeah, tell your tell your son as a salesperson, make that happen, right? Sell someone a game for three hundred sixty dollars, right? This is really tough, right? But here you are, right, in the morning, and you say, hey, for ninety nine cents, I could upgrade my magic sword, which will allow me to to slay this dragon and get me to level fifteen. That sounds fun. And what's 99 cents, right? I just pay like three ninety five for a coffee and latte at Starbucks, right? So, and you buy it and you sleep the Dragon, you get up to level 15. And say, Well, that was fun, right? You know, and so next morning you come up and you say, well, I could get this magic mushroom for 99 cents, which allowed me to, you know, get this new, new spell. And with that new spell, I can, can, you know, feed all of my troops. And you do this, right? And every morning you do this. And after a year, you spend $360.
1: You know this game far too well.
0: Right, and and <laughs> you might actually not, and you might not even even feel so bad about it because every morning you actually had some some fun experience, right? And so yeah. this is will be sort of an example of where you move the payment closer to the point in time when people actually derive value from your product. Right. Now, that, of course, requires that kind of, right, we have this constant connection It requires us to be able to charge you small amounts, right, in a very efficient way, kind of, right, that you don't have to pull out your credit card number or send me a check, right, kind of like we used to do, right, one tap, we are done. And, uh, yeah, so the, those are the kinds of some of the changes we see in terms of revenue models, right, that we can we can sell you services rather than products, we can sell you performance uh, rather than just a promise, right. And, again, sort of different people can sort themselves into, you know, there's, again, sort of some people who do this every morning with the game, right? There are only some people who do it every week and some people who never do it. Um, And, again, if I just had to be able to charge one price to everyone, that's tough, right? And so kind of these kind of per-use kind of uh, revenue models also actually allow us to uh, price differentiate across different customer types.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking about the game example, I was thinking about iTunes and you know, 99 cents for a track and how that completely yeah. transformed. It you know, got rid of, it. Napster disappeared because it was just so much easier to pay than it was to to rip yeah. off music. But, you know, Microsoft are a great example of that. You know, they used to sell you Windows and then make you upgrade and it was painful and they had to turn you off to force you to yes. keep paying. Yes. And then you look at moving from Windows Server in data centers, the world that I know really well, to Azure and... And it's something between they get over time. Instead of the one dollar they used to get for selling you Windows, they now get somewhere between fourteen and twenty-one dollars for the same if for the same workload on in the cloud. And they've persuaded you that it's cheaper, right. which is <laughs> an absolute masterstroke. Yeah. So I think I think that whole um, sub- business models is just fascinating. And so often businesses have just got one price. Yeah. You know, that whole, you know, they're just leaving so much on the table by having one product uh, and they charge all of their customers the same price. What, one of our clients recently realized that they did, they did next day, de- it's a delivery firm, they did next day delivery. And they then realized that some of their clients didn't need it next day. 24 hours would be okay. Right. And so all of a sudden, not only is the market bigger, but they now give themselves the opportunity to do differential pricing, and you know what had been absolute transformed their business. Yeah.
0: Now, I think sort of you know a related theme here is you know related to this theme of you know broader sets of things we can price is really this realization that customers quite often have a much longer journey with you than just experiencing the product or service that you offer to them, right? And, you know, so many times I have, you know, kind of managers come to me and say, well, Nikolai, come on, you know, you're talking about differentiation and creating sort of differences and willingness to pay about customers, but, you know, I'm in a commodity market Right? it's really hard for me to differentiate my product or my service, right? And so at the end of the day, then it always becomes sort of the low-cost guy wins and it's, you know, big price wars and what have you. And, and I think At least sometimes the way out of that is really to realize that, you know, a customer has a much longer journey with you. And when you are seeing a particular transaction with a customer, that quite often is only sort of the tip of the iceberg of actually much deeper underlying needs that this customer has. Right. So if I come to you and say, look, I want to buy an S&P 500 index fund. This is really tough to differentiate on, right? Kind of my S&P 500 <laughs> results here, right?
1: It's an index fund, right? There's, what else could you wrap around it?
0: Exactly, right? So it's sort of an interesting example. So how the heck am I differentiate my fund? You can't, right? But truth be told, it's probably not that I I want to buy an S&P 500 index fund. My, my, my deeper underlying need is that at some point, I hope I will retire and need some financial stability at that point. That's actually my my, my need, right, that, that I'm trying to solve here. And so... Every customer has some kind of underlying latent needs, right? Um, In this case, like one of those latent needs would be financial stability once retired. So then the first problem is when do actually customers become aware of their needs? Now, Some people say, well, this is ridiculous, right? It's it's you. You should be always aware of your needs, right? But that's not true. Uh, We quite often become aware of our needs at very inopportune opportune times, right? So uh, when you're lying on the floor with a heart attack, that's not the best time to become aware of your healthcare needs, right? When you turn 60, that's not the best time to become aware of your uh, need to save for retirement, right? Once your car has broken down, it's not the ideal time to become aware of the maintenance need of your cars, right? So people are not always aware of their needs at the best time. So if we can actually help customers become aware of their needs at more opportune times. And you know, coming back sort of to our healthcare example earlier, right? Kind of quite a lot of value can be gained. So now I may know, okay, I should be you know saving for retirement. Okay, how do I do this, right? I mean, what are the options? Well, there are a gazillion of options, right? There is, you know, insurance products, there are ETFs, there are passively managed index funds, there are bond funds. There are, I don't know. I mean, kind of there are so many options. So can you help me understand what are actually all the options out there? And then can you help me understand what is actually the best option for my particular case? Right? So again, lots of value right, in that step, a lot of pain points that people have. So now I understand I may need some kind of diversified portfolio of bond and equity funds, how do I buy them? Do I, can I do it myself? Do I need a broker? Right. So, so now comes the whole ordering process, the, the the paying process, the receiving the process, right? And then at some point, right, sort of, I enjoy my product, and then there's all this after sale service, right? Kind of then maybe my financial situation changes or whatever, right? And so, you know, by the time I come to you and say I want my S and P 500 index fund, the reason I'm buying it from you is not because you have the better fund, right? Because you've solved all of these other pain points in my life, right? And, and so that's kind of this notion of you know thinking about these value drivers with these willingness to pay drivers in a much more comprehensive way, right and that again links us back to our revenue models that we just talked about right because there are po- possibilities for for revenues all along that way uh, because we are creating value for customers
1: and well and it's i I find that is probably one of the things that people find so difficult exactly that you know that the company who sells the index fund thinks that the customer just wants to buy an index fund so sells them an index fund and they don't to use the the sort of the work you know jobs to be done right they don't know that there is another need which triggered you know they just they say well we sell widgets so what i'm going to do is i'm going to try and sell widgets because i've got no willingness to pay drivers because i don't understand what they are i haven't got a niche i've got i've got nothing i just look like everybody else then it becomes it just becomes about price. I see that all the time. Right, and one company follows another company follows another company, and that their strategy is to just follow other people. They don't actually step back and say, like Vanguard did. Okay, well, we're going to be disruptive in this marketplace by doing X, Y, Z differently. Yeah,
0: but but so this this deep understanding of a customer journey is not not easy, right? And it come doesn't come natural to many companies. Again, a sort of you know when I talk to managers, they say, look, so what are the willings to pay drivers of your customers? Most of the time, they're they're giving me sort of tangible and intangible aspects of their product, right? They're not thinking about anything else. Uh, right. You know, then we say, okay, so let's let's see. So what are actually the pain points sort of along the journey? They're telling me their pain points, not the customer's pain points. So I'm like, no, 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 let's put ourselves in the shoes of the customer, right? And that, that's still surprisingly difficult for, for many companies uh, to use sort of the you know, customer-centric view. And in part because we're not organized that way, right? Sort of we're organized by different functions, right? And... and <laughs>
1: We're organized the way that makes sense for us. Absolutely. Which is why it's all silos and hard for customers to navigate. You know,
0: and so that's why you're quite often treated as different customers, right, by the same company. Because if you interact with someone, they don't realize that, oh, it's the same person that's, you know, the other person just talked to, right? And then so, yeah, that's a problem.
1: So, uh, Nikolai, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier?
0: sort of you know you you mentioned it earlier about, about about technology, right and it's sort of funny that that technology so the first thing that we think about right when we think about sort of this digital stuff, right we are sort of always sort of attracted sort of to the to the glitzy shiny new object, right this is sort of cool and be it you know AI or deep learning or you know cool new sensors but you know the more we we we've studied these these connected strategies and the issues that companies have in trying to implement these strategies and the more we realize it's organizational <laughs> it's you know exactly what you were to say kind of we are organized by silos. we are not organized by by customer journeys, right And so uh, kind of the, the the technology is clearly important right because without the technology none of this would be feasible uh, but it's usually not the technology, that is sort of the stumbling block, right? That, that companies have. Because the technologies are usually sort of out there. And so kind of, a, you know, much deeper focus, I think, on the organizational change aspects. is this really important, you know, for, for companies to, to engage in this, in this connected strategy journey.
1: It's interesting. I remember one of my nicest examples was UK Mercedes-Benz car leasing. And what they did is they mapped out the customer journey and then they relayed the office to follow the customer journey. So when you talked to somebody at the initially and got a quote, that person was at one end of the office, and as you handed your car back at the end of the lease, that you know, so that so that the paperwork, even if it was electronic, as a customer you went from Bob to Sheila to Betty to John. Yeah, that was the best way they could capture the essence of the journey from an organization. They just implemented it as a seating plan. Yeah, yeah, which I always thought was just a a very non tech way to. Solve to solve the problem because they could see where the bottlenecks were in the process. So, connected strategy available from all good bookshops now.
0: <laughs> yes, and uh, even in Portuguese and Vietnamese right now. Uh, so, the, two, the first two translations are out, the Chinese is coming soon, the Japanese one is coming soon. Yeah, so.
1: Fantastic. What other books have had an impact on you along the way, or that you think people should pick up if they're interested in strategy, or even yeah. maybe you've got a holiday guide you think people right. should read to Hamburg?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, one I think really interesting book is called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Uh, you may you remember Hans Rosling sort of uh, gave like one of the most celebrated TED Talks with data visualization. And uh, uh, so, uh, that's, that's, that was a really interesting book about, and it's, I felt it was a very optimistic book, which is sort of sometimes nice to read. I, I have two books that are not so optimistic I'll talk about in a moment, but that was sort of...
1: Finished by his daughter after his death?
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, by his. Yeah. Uh, yes, I thought yes. that was
1: a fabulous, fabulous book.
0: All right. And so kind of giving us sort of insights, at least to me, kind of that I didn't have about sort of the world. So, so that was, that was neat. Um, two books I've recently read, um, one is by Rebecca Henderson reinventing capitalism actually I know Rebecca for a long time uh, uh, she used to be a professor at MIT now at uh, Harvard uh, and you know Bill Gates book on on uh, you know environmental change mm-hmm. so both both of those books are basically on on the environment and you know so a topic that I've become more and more interested in and really also thinking about you know how how can we use connected strategies to to solve some of the big big issues of uh, of the time right now because again right sort of connected strategies uh, quite often improve efficiencies so, you know very much um, and you know kind of giving that spin but, but yeah so those two books I found found really sort of interesting right now
1: fantastic Nikolai, thank you very much indeed for being on it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you now sure. having spent so much time watching you talk at me to get you on and talk to you in person it's been it's been, uh, yes. it's been very good thank you
0: thank you so much Dominic for having me thank you
1: all right cheers bye